0: This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. In this lecture, Dr. Craig addresses the question, has Stephen Hawking eliminated the need for a creator? For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Quantum physics, the very term is enough to send a chill up your spine and the theologians ducking into foxholes. Stephen Hawking is the quantum king of popular culture. His brief history of time has sold over nine million copies. According to the New York Times, Hawking is the most revered scientist since Einstein. So, when Stephen Hawking says in his most recent book, The Grand Design, co-authored with Leonard Mlodinow, that quantum physics renders a creator and designer of the universe superfluous the temptation is to hoist the white flag of surrender. When Hawking goes even further and says on the recent television program Curiosity that modern cosmology furnishes a proof of atheism then the average believer may feel deeply shaken in his faith. But. Do these bold assertions bear scrutiny? Sir Martin Rees of the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge and the Astronomer Royal of Great Britain is not impressed. In an interview in The Independent in September of last year, he said candidly, and I quote, Stephen Hawking is a remarkable person whom I've known for 40 years and for that reason, any oracular statement he makes gets exaggerated publicity. I know Stephen Hawking well enough to know that he has read very little philosophy and even less theology, and so I don't think we should attach any weight to his views on this topic, End quote. Well, tonight I propose that we take a closer look at what Hawking has to say about God's role in creation and see if his claims do bear scrutiny. Hawking and Mladenov open their book, The Grand Design, with a series of profound questions. What is the nature of reality? Where did all this come from? Did the universe need a creator? And then they say, Traditionally, these are questions for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. Philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. Now as a professional philosopher, I could only roll my eyes at the audacity of such a statement. Two scientists who have to all appearances little acquaintance with philosophy are prepared to pronounce an entire discipline dead and to so insult their faculty colleagues in philosophy at Caltech and Cambridge University including many prominent philosophers of science like Michael Redhead and D.H. Meller for supposedly failing to keep up. Their pronouncement is not only uh, amazingly condescending but also outrageously naive. The man who claims to have no need of philosophy is the man most apt to be deceived by it. And you might therefore anticipate that Hawking and Mladenov's subsequent exposition of their favored theories will be underpinned by a host of unexamined philosophical presuppositions. And that expectation is in fact borne out. Their claims about the laws of nature, uh, the possibility of miracles, scientific determinism, and the illusion of free will are all asserted with only the thinnest of justification. Now, I don't have time to talk about these issues this evening, but if you're interested, I've examined them in more detail uh, at my website, reasonablefaith.org. Just look at the question of the week, number 181, for a discussion of these issues, clearly, Mladenov and Hawking are up to their necks in philosophical questions. What you might not expect, however, is that after pronouncing the death of philosophy, Hawking and Mladenov should themselves plunge into a philosophical discussion of scientific realism versus anti-realism. I thought philosophy was supposed to be dead. And yet the first third of their book is not about current scientific theories at all, but is a disquisition on the history and philosophy of science. And I found this section of the book to be the most interesting and mind-boggling part of the entire volume. Let me explain. Having set aside a Monday afternoon to read Hawking and Mladenov's book, I spent that morning working through a scholarly philosophical article from Blackwell's uh, Contemporary Debates in Metaphysics on a physical or rather philosophical viewpoint which is known as ontological pluralism. Ontological pluralism, now what is that? Well, ontological pluralism is a view in an area of philosophy whose name sounds like stuttering. Uh, It's called meta-metaphysics, meta-metaphysics, or as it's sometimes called meta-ontology. This is philosophy at its most ethereal. Ontology is the study of what exists, the nature of reality. Meta-ontology is one notch higher. It inquires whether ontological disputes are meaningful and how best to resolve them. And ontological pluralism is a view that holds that there really is no right answer to many ontological questions. Such as, for example, do composite objects exist? According to the ontological pluralist, there are just different ways of describing reality, and none of these is more correct or more accurate than another. So for example, there literally is no fact of the matter in answer to the question, is there such a thing as the moon? The ontological pluralist would say that the question has no objective answer. It's not true that the moon exists, and it's not true that the moon does not exist. There just is no fact of the matter about whether there is such a thing as the moon. Well, autological pluralism is obviously a very radical view uh, which is held by a handful of philosophers. Imagine my astonishment, therefore, to find Hawking and Mladenov espousing ontological pluralism without of course being aware of the name uh, as their answer to the question what is the nature of reality? Now they call their view model dependent realism but it's really ontological pluralism. They explain that models are just different ways of interpreting our sense perceptions and on their view There is no objective reality out there to which our models of the world more or less accurately correspond. And so Mladenov and Hawking are thus in fact extreme anti-realists. They deny that there is any objective way the world is. So for example, contrasting young earth creationism and the big bang theory Hawking and Mladenov claim that while the Big Bang Theory is quote, more useful, nevertheless, neither model can be said to be more real than the other. End quote. Now think of it, this great champion of modern cosmology thinks that the Big Bang model of the universe is no more real than the creation of the world 6,000 years ago. So you can't help but wonder what sort of an argument would justify adopting so radical a view. Well, all that Miladnov and Hawking have to offer uh, is the fact that if you were, say, uh, an inhabitant of a virtual reality controlled by alien beings, there would be no way for you to tell that you were in the simulated world and so you would have no reason to doubt its reality. Well, the trouble with this sort of argument is that that doesn't exclude that there are, in this case, two competing models of the world. One is the alien's model and one is your model and one of the models is real and the other one is illusory, Uh, even if you can't tell which is which. So it doesn't really support ontological pluralism at all. There is a reality which is real and another which is purely illusory in an objective way. Moreover, the fact that our observations are model dependent doesn't imply that we can't have knowledge of the way the world is uh, or much less that there is uh, no way that the world is. For example, Uh, A layman entering a scientific laboratory might see that there is a piece of machinery on the lab table, but he wouldn't see that there is an interferometer on the lab table because he lacks the theoretical knowledge to recognize the machine as an interferometer. A caveman entering the laboratory wouldn't even see that there's a piece of machinery on the table because he lacks the concept of a machine. But that does nothing to undermine the objective truth of the lab technician's observation that there is, in fact, an interferometer on the table. Hawking and Milodnov, not content with ontological pluralism, really go off the deep end when they assert there is no model independent test of reality It follows that a well-constructed model creates a reality of its own. There is no model independent test of reality. It follows that a well-constructed model creates a reality of its own. Now this is an assertion of ontological relativism, which is the view that reality itself is different for persons having different models. So for example, if you're Fred Hoyle, the universe really has existed eternally in a steady state. But if you're Roger Penrose, then the universe really did begin with a big bang a finite time ago. If you're the ancient physician Galen, blood really does not circulate through the human body. But if you're William Harvey, who discovered blood circulation than it really does. Now, such a view seems crazy and is made only more so by Hawking and Mladenov's claim that the model itself creates its respective reality. And it hardly needs to be said that no such conclusion follows from there being no model independent test of the way that the world is. Now, all of this is, however, besides my main point. The main point I'm trying to make is that despite their claim to speak as scientific torchbearers of knowledge, what Hawking and Mladenov are engaged in is philosophy. The most important conclusions drawn in their book are philosophical conclusions, not scientific conclusions. So, why then do they pronounce philosophy dead and claim as scientists to be bearing the torch of discovery? Simply because that enables them to cloak their amateurish philosophizing with the mantle of scientific authority and so avoid the hard work of actually arguing for rather than merely asserting their philosophical viewpoints. And for that reason, I am frankly not terribly impressed when scientists begin to pronounce on questions of philosophy and theology. For when they do so, they are speaking outside their area of specialization, and their opinions have no more value than the opinions of untutored laymen. In fact, they are untutored layman, when it comes to those questions, for scientists typically lack any training in philosophy or theology. Now with that in mind, let's look more closely at Hawking and Mladenov's answer to the profound questions that they initially posed. Where did the universe come from? Did the universe need a creator? Their answer to these questions involves an appeal to the so-called no-boundary model of the origin of the universe, which was popularized by Hawking in his book A Brief History of Time. And our two authors of the grand design simply expound the model without adducing any evidence for it or mentioning any of the alternative models to it nor do they choose to respond to any of the criticisms of the model, Uh, for example, that the so-called imaginary time featured in the model is physically unintelligible and therefore merely a mathematical trick that is useful for avoiding the cosmological singularity which appears in classical theories at the beginning of the universe. Still, their exposition in the grand design is not without interest with regard to the beginning of the universe. For example, they write as follows, and I quote, the realization that time can behave like another direction of space means one can get rid of the problem of time having a beginning in a similar way in which we got rid of the edge of the world. Suppose the beginning of the universe was like the south pole of the Earth, with degrees of latitude playing the role of time. As one moves north, the circles of constant latitude representing the size of the universe would expand. The universe would start as a point at the south pole, but the south pole is much like any other point. To ask what happened before the beginning of the universe would be a meaningless question. So use this mic and should I just disregard this one? Okay, yeah, it's not working very well. (laughs) To ask what happened before the beginning of the universe would become a meaningless question because there is nothing south of the South Pole. In this picture, space-time has no boundary. The same laws of nature hold at the South Pole as at other places," end quote. This passage is fascinating because it represents a rather different interpretation of the model than what we had in A Brief History of Time. Let me explain. In his model, Hawking employs imaginary numbers like the square root of negative one for the time variable in his equations in order to get rid of the initial cosmological singularity which is the boundary of space time in the standard Big Bang model. The initial segment of space time in Hawking's model, instead of terminating in a point like a cone, is rounded off rather like a badminton birdie. The south pole of this rounded off surface is like any other point on that surface, and hence the idea that there is no boundary. Since imaginary time behaves like a dimension of space, Hawking interpreted his no boundary universe to just be in capital letters. But in the grand design as we've seen, the South Pole is interpreted to represent the beginning point to both time and the universe. Despite the fact that imaginary time behaves like another spatial dimension, Hawking allows the circles of latitude to play the role of time, which has a beginning point at the South Pole. When Hawking speaks of the problem of time having a beginning, what he means is, and I quote, the age-old objection to the universe having a beginning, an objection which his model removes. So what is that age-old objection? Well, that objection, he says, is the question, what happened before the beginning of the universe? And Hawking is quite right, that this question is meaningless on his model. Since time begins at the South Pole, it's meaningless to say what was there before that point. But what he fails to mention is that this question is equally meaningless on the standard Big Bang model since there just is nothing prior to the initial cosmological singularity. On either model the universe has an absolute temporal beginning. So the real question is not what was there before the beginning. The real question is why did the universe begin to exist? Why is there? something rather than nothing. Hawking and Mladenov advocate what they call a top-down approach to this question. And the idea here is to begin with our presently observed universe characterized by the standard model of particle physics and then calculate, given the no boundary condition, the probability of various histories allowed by quantum physics to reach our present state. The most probable history represents the history of our observable universe. Hawking and Milodnov claim, quote, in this view, the universe appeared spontaneously from nothing, end quote. And by spontaneously, they appear to mean without a cause. But how does that follow from the model? The top-down approach calculates the probability of our observable universe given the no boundary condition. It calculates the probability of our universe given the no boundary condition. The top-down approach doesn't calculate the probability that the no boundary condition should exist in the first place, it just takes it for granted. Such a condition is however not metaphysically or physically necessary. If the universe came into being uncaused from nothing, it could have any conceivable uh, spatio-temporal configuration. For nothingness or non-being has no properties, uh, no constraints, it's governed by no physical laws physics only begins at the South Pole in the no boundary model. There isn't anything in the model that implies that that point came to be without a cause. Indeed, the idea that being could arise without a cause from non-being seems metaphysically absurd. In his recent interview on the television program, Curiosity, Hawking goes yet a step further to argue that atheism is true because there is no time at which God could have created the universe since time began at the Big Bang. This is a terrible argument, however, since it just assumes without justification that causes must precede their effects in time. But philosophers frequently discuss cases in which cause and effect are simultaneously. That is to say, the cause and the effect occur at the same time. So, why couldn't God's creating the universe be simultaneous with the universe's coming into being? In fact, what could be more obvious? Of course the universe comes into being at the time that God creates the universe. Now, if Hawking insists that the initial singularity in the Standard Model is not, technically speaking, a point in space time, but is rather a boundary of space time, well, fine. Uh, we can still say in that case that God's creating the universe was coincident with the universe is coming into being. That is to say, they occur together at the boundary of space-time. Besides, his model is supposed to have eliminated the boundary point of space-time in favor of an ordinary point uh, like the South Pole at which the universe began. So what's the problem with saying that God created the universe at that point of the South Pole? Hawking's attempt to invalidate theism is, I'm afraid, singularly unimpressive. Now Hawking and Mladenov seem to realize that they haven't yet answered the question, why is there something rather than nothing? For they return to this question in their concluding chapter of the book and here they give a quite different answer. Uh, In the concluding chapter, they explained that there is a constant vacuum energy contained in empty space, and if the universe's positive energy associated with matter is evenly balanced by the negative energy associated with gravitation, then the universe can spontaneously come into being as a fluctuation of the energy in the vacuum, which by a clever sleight of hand they say, we may as well call zero. Now this seems to be a very different account of the universe's origin, for it presupposes the reality of space and the energy in it. So it's puzzling when Hawking and Mladenov conclude, and I quote, because there is a law like gravity the universe can and will create itself from nothing in the manner described in chapter 6 end quote now here it said that the nothingness spoken of in chapter 6 is not really nothingness after all but it's space filled with vacuum energy but space filled with vacuum energy is hardly nothing and certainly doesn't exist prior to the South Pole in the model and all of this just goes to reinforce the conviction that the no boundary approach only describes the evolution of our universe from its origin at the South Pole to its present state but it is simply silent as to why the universe came to exist in the first place. Now what all of this implies is that Hawking hasn't even begun to address the question, why is there something rather than nothing? For nothing in his vocabulary does not have the traditional meaning non-being but rather it means the quantum vacuum, space filled with vacuum energy. Hawking and Mladenov's equivocal use of terms is painfully evident in an interview that they did with Larry King on his program Larry King Live. And here's how this interview went. Hawking, gravity and quantum theory cause universes to be created spontaneously out of nothing king. Who created the nothing? Where did the nothing come from? Mladenov. According to quantum theory, there is no such thing as nothingness. Now, in this ridiculous exchange, Hawking is using nothing to refer to the quantum vacuum, while Mladenov is using it to refer to non-being, and that way they simply avoid the tough question why is there something rather than nothing by equivocating on the meaning of the word nothing. So in conclusion, despite Hawking and Mladenov's uh, constant sniping at religious belief throughout their book, I think there's actually genuine profit in this book for religious believers, especially for those of us who are interested in natural theology, that is to say, arguments for God's existence. For the authors affirm and argue for the fact of an absolute beginning of time and the universe which points to a transcendent creator of the universe. Given the desperation and or irrelevancy of their proffered answers to the questions that motivated their inquiry, I think that their book thus turns out to be quite supportive of the existence of a personal creator of the universe. Thank you. So, now we've got time for discussion on anything that I've said. Uh, so, just raise your hand and I'll call upon you and we'll uh, take your question.
1: Wasn't it Dun uh, Scotus that originally used that phrase, why is there something rather than
0: nothing? Does that, doesn't that go off? The question was, the, why is there something rather than nothing? Does that go back to the medieval theologian John Duns Scotus? I don't remember SCOTUS enunciating that question specifically. It's usually associated with Leibniz, um, a 17th century German philosopher and mathematician. Leibniz said that the first question which should rightly be asked is, why is there something rather than nothing? But in one sense, this question has been the central question of metaphysics ever since the ancient Greek philosophers, Plato and Parmenides, why is there being, um, And what is the explanation of, of reality? So the question was explicitly formulated, I know, by Leibniz, perhaps earlier, but the burden of the question has always been part of Western philosophy. Yes. Well, you. Uh, talk to- Yes. That
1: possible uh, social constructionism. And, and can you kind of expand a little bit on that? Because uh, as we kind of talk about the theory right now, communication, and the idea there that they try to create uh, is that because of our senses and because of our perception, we perceive the world in different ways, and therefore somehow that affects the world, which I don't. See.
0: Yeah. This ontological relativism that Hawking and Mladenov endorse is very similar to these social constructionist views of postmodernists who says that each individual constructs reality for himself and leads, I think, as I said, to these preposterous conclusions that, for example, for Galen, blood really doesn't circulate through the body, but for William Harvey it does, which seems mad. I think that the truth of model, dependent perceptions of the world is that our concepts will determine how we see the world. I gave the example of different people entering a laboratory and seeing a machine. Someone who has the theoretical knowledge will see, oh, that's an interferometer there on the table. But a a caveman who doesn't even understand what a machine is wouldn't even see there's a machine on the table. Similarly, a, a person who doesn't understand the rules of baseball and who walks into a stadium would see a ball flying over the wall, but he wouldn't see that a home run has just been hit. You have to understand the rules of baseball to see that a home run has been hit. Um, Similarly, uh, a person who, say, doesn't understand the game of chess wouldn't understand that a person has just checkmated his opponent. He wouldn't see that checkmate has occurred. He would just see that the man has moved one figurine to another square. But a person who sees the rule, understands the rules of chess, will see that he has checkmated his opponent. That's the truth of the fact that our prior conceptions shape how we see the world. But I think you can see from my examples that this does absolutely nothing to undermine the objectivity of the way the world really is, or uh, that our perceptions create the world. Um, Indeed, having the right conceptual knowledge can actually assist you in understanding the world. The technician who sees that there is an interferometer on the table grasps the world more accurately than the caveman, who doesn't have the theoretical knowledge to... See that fact. So far from undermining the objectivity of the world, uh, our theological equipment or, or rather our theoretical equipment and cognitive frameworks can actually help us to see the world more adequately and more accurately. But it certainly doesn't do anything to undermine the objectivity of the world in itself, much less to uh, suggest that our models create the world. Yes. You briefly, is this on?
1: you briefly mentioned uh, atemporal causality, where things happen simultaneously. The cause and the effect are simultaneous. And one of the examples you've used in the past was the uh, cushion sitting on the pillow. Yes. Well, I tried that example with you know, an atheist friend. And he said, oh, no, no, but those things, those, the, the cushion needs you know, molecules to move and all that. Is there another example that we can use to prove that point or to show that point?
0: Well, I'm, when I, he asked for an example of simultaneous causation, and the example that I give is one from Kant. A heavy ball resting on a cushion causes a concavity in that cushion. It causes a depression in the cushion. Clearly, the concave shape of the cushion doesn't cause the roundness of the ball, right? It, it's very clear which way the causality goes. And yet, it's not as though the ball had to exist prior to the cushion. They could have uh, existed together from eternity past. The ball could have always been on the cushion. So the cushion never existed without the depression or the concavity caused by the ball. And this would be, I think, an example of simultaneous causation on the macro level. Now your atheist friend or the denier of simultaneous causation can try to get away from it by saying well but when you examine it on the atomic or micro level then in fact there do need to be an exchange of particles uh, between the ball and the cushion to mediate the causal influence. Well all right On on the micro level, when you go down that deep, then there wouldn't be simultaneous causation of the particles. But what you could say there is, again, the impact of one particle upon another doesn't happen until they come into contact. So that again, it is simultaneous. Uh, it, It is when one particle contacts the other that causation occurs. But before they come into contact, the particle certainly doesn't cause anything. If there's a temporal gap, that's not causing anything in that other particle. There has to be contact. So I don't think ultimately you escape the force of the example by trying to go down to the microscopic level. It seems to me that uh, that just changes the nature of the problem, but it still makes sense to talk about cause and effect being simultaneous. And indeed, I would say here, the burden of proof is on the objector. He's gotta give some reason why causes would have to be prior to their effects in time. And that's a really bizarre idea when you think about it, that the cause has to be prior to its effect. How, how could it produce its cause or its effect until they are at the same time because if there's any gap in between them, the cause could disappear in the next instant and so never come into contact with the effect. Well then how would the effect be produced across that temporal gap? The, the idea that causes must be chronologically prior to the effect I think is really, really strange. And so the detractor of this answer that God and creation are simultaneous, I think has got a real burden of proof to bear.
1: Yes? I'm taking this out of the realm of philosophy for a minute if you don't mind. Um, I don't know if you heard, I'm sure a handful of people heard on KQED uh, yesterday, Tom Wright was on with some other theologians and a caller calls in and he asks about the historical Jesus and says, you know, did Jesus learn from so-and-so and this person? And, uh, N.T. Wright, he commented that he thought it was amazing how firm Americans are in their, uh, desire to not believe who Jesus was. Hmm. Uh, and I was curious, and he said more so than he saw in England. Um, I'm curious from your personal level, and this is clearly a leading question, but, um, with somebody like Stephen Hawking and you find him being incredibly popular in, in pop's, uh, pop culture and social circles, you hear a lot about this character. Do you find it uh, similar to what Tom Wright saw in that this is the last thing that Americans want to believe that the universe came from someone or do you find it a genuine interest in his contribution to the scientific community and, and what he's presenting?
0: Are you talking about in Britain?
1: No, no, I'm just curious, in general, Stephen Hawking, yeah. is his popularity, do you find it's due to his contribution scientifically or a fear to conclude
0: the opposite? Well, I think that as Sir Martin Rees, whom I quoted, indicated, Stephen Hawking is a unique individual because of his Lou Gehrig's disease and the, the, the incredible battle that he's fought against that, and yet the scientific contribution that he's made in mathematical physics, he has become a sort of iconic figure and unfortunately has used that scientific authority to make pronouncements outside his area of specialization in philosophy and theology. Um, and those pronouncements I think are tremendously interesting to people. He's been on Star Trek, he was on the cover of Time Magazine, he's on television programs, Uh, his editorials appeared in the Wall Street Journal in advance of the release of the grand design, his works are runaway bestsellers. So yes, if I'm answering the question I think you're asking, he seems to be a tremendously influential figure in pop culture with respect to these religious questions.
1: And, and just to kind of push a little further, I was curious if um, you caught what I was saying about N.T. Wright's comment. Sorry, this is running on, but he was saying that people just do not want to face the conclusions about Jesus, therefore they try to explain away who Jesus was. Hmm. And I was just curious, do you find that people are latching on to Stephen Hawking? Um, yes, he is. he's a very interesting character, but do you find a lot of that similar
0: well, sentiment? I have to say, uh, in certain quarters, like on YouTube and the internet, I am shocked the degree to which theological prejudices will make people deny a, neutral, a religiously neutral statement like the universe began to exist you would think a statement like the universe began to exist, being theologically neutral in and of itself, would be one to which scientific evidence would be relevant and which you could fairly adjudicate based on the scientific evidence. And yet, I think seeing the sort of theological implications of this has caused many people to oppose the truth of that statement on quite unscientific grounds and to latch onto these sorts of speculative models in any sort of attempt to avoid the beginning of the universe, whether there's good evidence for these models or not. So in certain quarters at least, I do think that there is a remarkable denial of the evidence for the beginning of the universe based upon theological motivations. Yes, down here there's a question.
1: Uh, It's related, but I was wondering, do you think the Grand Design would be a... Hi. Hello? Check. Okay. I was wondering if you believe the Grand Design would be a good book as an introduction to cosmology and understanding you know, relativity theory and the Big Bang Theory and everything like that, or if there's another book that you would recommend that perhaps isn't as theologically biased and have these philosophical problems. Yeah, this book
0: really is theologically biased, and as I say, the first third of the book is pure philosophy. It's not about science, it's this ontological relativity, ontological pluralism, and then these views on free will, miracles, just a lot of pop philosophizing masquerading as science, so for that reason, I wouldn't recommend the book as a source for understanding contemporary Uh, cosmological theories.
1: Is there one you would recommend to understand, you know, relativity theory and the Big Bang model and everything like that?
0: Well, in terms of Relativity theory, I actually would recommend going back and reading some of Albert Einstein's books. He did some popular level books on relativity theory. I think he wrote a book on the theory of relativity, general and special relativity. I, I, I can no longer remember the title. I, I footnote it in my published work. But he wrote popular level books on relativity theory that are very readable and engaging. And I would go back and read his work or some of the early works of Sir Arthur Eddington, uh, an early pioneer in, in cosmology. These. These are great works of scientific popularization, quite unlike Hawking's attempts at scientific popularization which are filled with amateurish philosophizing and inaccuracy. So I would recommend uh, the works of Sir Arthur Eddington and some of the works of Albert Einstein himself for understanding these. With respect to quantum theory, a very nice book on a lay level is one by a man named Nick Herbert, called uh, Quantum Reality, I think is the title of it. If you Google his name though, you would certainly recognize the title if that's not exactly it, Nick Herbert, Quantum Reality. And this is so helpful because he goes through about nine different interpretations of the equations of quantum mechanics and explains how we don't really know which of any of these physical interpretations is the right one and just debunks a lot of the myths uh, about the philosophical implications of quantum mechanics. So that's a really a nice popular level book too. Okay, over here.
1: That's great. Uh, what do you think about some of the uh, attempts um, to uh, render all causation simultaneous
0: uh, speak a little more clearly. what do you what think do you about I
1: mean, uh, some attempts to render all causation simultaneous
0: all causation.
1: yeah yeah I've heard there are some
0: um, I don't have any brief to carry for that I mean in one sense you could say that for example uh, a horse is caused by the mating of two horses prior to it. And in that sense, the the cause existed prior to the effect and led up to it. I think that in different instances, what you identify as the cause is going to be person dependent. It's going to be what you want to focus on. And so in some cases, you might well point to prior entities as being the cause of the entity that you have in question, even if uh, there is an event that takes place in the process where say you do have two things that are absolutely simultaneous. All I'm saying is that you can't disqualify God as being the cause of the Big Bang because he didn't exist temporally prior to the Big Bang. That, that isn't a good objection to saying that God is the cause of the Big Bang. There's one.
1: What I don't get is, um, if they believe in ontological relativism, then why do they re- like write this book? Isn't it why, a model? Why, why? Isn't it a model itself? The book that the idea is trying to put forward is also a model?
0: Well, yes, I mean, it would follow from their book that what they're saying is just their reality and, and not anything that the rest of us ought to believe in. I mean, that's what the, I, I was so astonished when Hawking says, that young Earth creationism is on a par with Big Bang cosmology. That one is just more useful than the other, but neither one of them is more real or accurate than the other. I mean, that, that's just fantastic. That means that for say, Ken Ham, the universe really came into being 6,000 years ago. But for Stephen Hawking, It's existed for 13.7 billion years and that there's no objective fact of the matter But that is their view in in the book. That's the view they take and that's their own example It's really amazing
1: I'm gonna go ahead and jump in since I have a mic so if you're done over here. Sorry.
0: Oh Way in the back Sorry.
1: Um, So I'm not sure if this is what Hawking's is arguing in his book, but um, I'm wondering why is it more coherent to say that an eternal God created the universe than that some eternal quantum vacuum created the universe?
0: I haven't tried to justify the existence of God in this talk tonight. I've just attempted to adjudicate Hawking's claim to have eliminated the need for a creator, right? So this has been purely defensive. Has he succeeded in showing that you don't need a creator, that it's superfluous? Now, if I were to try to give a positive argument, what I would say is that the evidence indicates that this quantum vacuum state is not eternal in the past, but that it had an absolute beginning. And that is what Hawking and Mladenov argue for and affirm in their book. The universe had an ab- and time had an absolute beginning at the South Pole in their model. And since being can't come from non-being, there has to exist some sort of transcendent reality beyond space and time which brought the universe into being including the quantum state out of which our material universe uh, may have formed by a quantum fluctuation.
1: So there could be some like larger space or larger universe that our smaller universe is a part of? Yes, is could eternal? our,
0: this is one possibility, could our universe just be a part of a broader multiverse uh, which is eternal in the past? Perhaps we're just a bubble in a sea of expanding bubbles of other universes. The, the interesting thing about this seemingly metaphysical speculation is that in 2003, Three very prominent cosmologists, Alan Guth, Alexander Vilenkin, and Arvind Bord, crafted a theorem which showed that any universe which has on average been in a state of cosmic expansion over its history cannot be infinite in the past, but must have a past space-time boundary. And they showed that their theorem also applies to the multiverse. So that even if our universe is just a part of this broader world ensemble of worlds, even the multiverse itself must have an absolute beginning at some time in the finite past. So that even the multiverse hypothesis doesn't escape the problem of an absolute beginning of the universe and then the philosophical question, why did the universe come into being? If you're interested in looking at that more, take a look at uh, my book reasonable faith uh in the chapter on god's existence uh, it has a, a thorough discussion of this another question down here there
1: hello i'm thinking about the possibility of creating a theory that explains how something can come out of nothing is it possible for a theory that explains everything and also itself would that be a viable theory
0: Okay, explain to me again the the proposal, what is the proposal? A theory that
1: explains how something comes out of nothing and also explains itself, which is meaning self-referential.
0: I don't understand, you'd have to give me the theory. I mean, Daniel Dennett suggested something like this. I should speak into the mic. Daniel Dennett suggested something like this. He said the universe caused itself to come into being. He says it's the ultimate bootstrapping trick. The universe brought itself into existence. Well, I think this kind of bootstrapping is clearly impossible, because in order to bring itself into existence, the universe would have to exist in order to bring itself into existence. So the idea of self-causation is, I think, logically incoherent. It has a vicious explanatory circle. Um, So I cannot imagine any sort of plausible theory that would explain how anything did what you said, namely it explains how it itself came into being, uh, it would seem to me that would involve this kind of vicious circularity to it. You need to have a reality that transcends the universe and brings is different and separate from it and brings the universe into being. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a question down front, okay.
1: Yeah, I realize that we have no um, proof for the existence of that string theory is true or not true and that it's a, there's a mathematical elegance to it, but can you comment on how string theory affects uh, you know the cosmological arguments and uh-huh. some of the other natural theology uh, issues we've been talking about?
0: String theory is an alternative to the standard model of particle physics which consider, conceives of reality on the most fundamental level to be not point particles but little one dimensional strings of energy which vibrate in different ways. And I don't see that this has any implications for the question of the beginning of the universe whether or not space time has a past boundary. Now there are some speculative proposals about pre-Big Bang cosmologies based on string theory but when you look at these Uh, more closely, you find that they cannot be extrapolated to the infinite past. Uh, That they posit unstable conditions that could not exist for past infinity and would quickly uh, dissolve or become um, undone so that they cannot have existed for infinite time in the past. And if, if you're interested in this, as you seem to have some knowledge of it, Look at the article that I co-authored with the physicist James Sinclair in the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology. And Jim has an excellent, excellent survey of all of the various proposals on tap today for trying to avoid the absolute beginning of the universe and extrapolate back to past infinity. And he talks about string theories, pre-Big Bang cosmologies, as well as inflationary scenarios, uh, semi-classical models, even closed time-like curves, um, uh, ekpyrotic cyclic models, uh, oscillating theories, loop quantum gravity models. I mean, he really does a nice survey of these. And what he shows is that in every case, uh, none of these are extrapolable to an eternal infinite past. They may push the beginning back a step, but they all involve conditions that preclude there being uh, an infinite universe in the past. They all uh, are still stuck with the problem of a cosmic beginning. So what I would say uh, with respect to the evidence today is that while scientific evidence is never compelling, it's never determinative, it's always provisional. Having said that, if you weigh the evidence for or against the proposition the universe began to exist, I'm not aware of any evidence that the universe is eternal in the past. I don't think there's anything on that side of the scale that suggests the universe has existed for infinite time from eternity past. I'm not aware of anything on the other hand, we do have some pretty good evidence like the board guth vilenkin theorem that suggests that the universe had a beginning and is not eternal in the past. So that all of the evidence seems to me to be on one side of the scale, even if it's not determinative and, and absolutely compelling, that's certainly where the evidence points. And that makes it all more odd, what I mentioned before, of how some people will resist this theologically neutral statement and resist the evidence just dogmatically simply out of theological biases against the idea of creation. Any final question before we bring our time to a close? There's a...
1: Hi. I'm really interested in why, for Stephen Hawking, something like ontological pluralism just seems to be so true. Uh, do you think that has something to do? because it, it doesn't seem to help his theory at all, that he no, would accept no, no, no. ontological pluralism. Do you think that has to do with his discipline or being seeped in a postmodern cultural culture? Do you have other intuitions about that?
0: This is a very good question because, as you say, it doesn't do anything to help his model or his theory. This is a purely philosophical viewpoint. I think my suspicion is that it flows out of Hawking's positivism and verificationism. Hawking, from his previous work, still seems to labor under the old positivism of the 1930s and 40s which he, was, he probably imbibed during his training as a young scientist, which basically said that if you can't prove something through the five senses, through scientific evidence, then it's meaningless uh, and has no reality one way or the other. And I think that this ontological relativism may be the kind of vestige of this positivism Uh, of thinking that if you can't prove something one way or another scientifically, then it's just meaningless and there is no objective truth about it. Though it really goes even beyond that because I mean, we've got pretty good evidence that the world is not 6,000 years old and yet he seems to want to affirm this relativity. So I I, I can see it as, as related to his verificationism and positivism, but that can't be the whole story. When I read the book, I wondered about the degree to which this could be reflecting his co-author's views. How much of this book is really Leonard Mladenov? Uh, because, I mean, Hawking is very incapacitated physically. I think it would be hard for him to write a book. Could it this be that Leonard Mladenov has just taken some of Hawking's scientific works and popularized them and put them in the context of Mladenov's own amateurish philosophizing, so that this is really due to him and not to Hawking? And I don't know the answer to that question. I I just raise that as a a speculation, given that the book is co-authored and probably owes a lot of the substance to Leonard Mladenov and not to Stephen Hawking. Well, thank you very much for attending, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org.